0: Welcome to the How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast, presented by the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber in Boston.
1: Join us as we review some of the more complicated colon and rectal cancer cases and discuss the treatment decisions with leading medical experts in the colorectal cancer field. this episode, we are joined by Kimmy Ng, one of the medical oncologists in my group and a colleague who has interest in diet and lifestyle in colorectal cancer survivors. Let's listen in.
0: Good morning, Kimmy. Thank you for coming to produce this podcast, which I think will be a, a big hit among our referring doctors and among the, even the general public about supplements in colorectal cancer. So first, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us where you trained, what you're doing now, and your uh, position at Harvard Medical School.
2: Yes, so thank you for having me here. I am a medical oncologist in the Gastrointestinal Cancer Center at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I direct the clinical trials office for the division as well as oversee the GI Cancer Biobank, and I'm an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. I did my residency training at UCSF out in San Francisco and then came here for fellowship and have been on staff, faculty here since 2008.
0: Well, the issue of supplements is something that comes up almost in every visit. A patient comes in, they're shocked they have cancer and they wanna know what could have have done to prevent it. And then after their surgery, they say, well, well, I've heard if I take this, that, or this other thing that I will prevent it from coming back or from recurring. So just in general, how do you and how do the, the scientific community sort out what's fact and what's fiction, and how can we help the patient?
2: So that is a great question, and it is really hard to tease out what is truth from not truth. And part of the reason is because a lot of these studies are epidemiologic studies. They rely on self-report from patients answering questionnaires, and it's subject to some recall bias as well as other types of biases. The other important thing to remember is that a lot of these results that are you know broadcast out in the media as fact are actually just correlations. And because supplement use and specific dietary and lifestyle factors can accompany other healthy behaviors, a lot of confounding can happen that may discount whether or not a supplement actually benefits the patient in preventing recurrence or not. So the gold standard is really to follow up a lot of these epidemiologic studies with laboratory data that... Uh, elucidates a biological mechanism that makes that result plausible and to follow up with a randomized clinical trial to really prove cause and effect.
0: So let's take a typical clinical scenario. A patient 60 years old comes in, they've been diagnosed with a right colon cancer. It doesn't look like there's any metastatic disease, so they go to surgery first, they have a colectomy, they do well, and now they're in my office uh, about two weeks post-op, going, Doc, what can I take in order to prevent this from coming back? And what what should I have done in the past? So what's, what should I tell that patient? What supplements should they start on now that they're done well on their post-op? And let's say this was a T3N1 cancer.
2: So for a patient with stage 3 cancer, obviously we will recommend adjuvant chemotherapy, for three to six months depending on uh, the risk profile of that stage three cancer. But there has been a lot of questions from patients. What they're interested in is figuring out what can they do and take control of in their post-operative, post-chemotherapy life to help prevent a recurrence of this cancer and increase their rate of cure. And traditionally, up until a few years ago, nobody had really studied the influence of diet and lifestyle on secondary prevention, so preventing recurrence of an established colon cancer. All of the data before have been epidemiologic studies in healthy individuals to prevent the initial development of the colon cancer. So what I and our group has done is really look at cohorts of stage 3 colon cancer patients. We administer dietary and lifestyle questionnaires that assess a variety of behaviors as well as supplement and medication use to see if any of those uh, factors um, actually influence the risk of recurrence. And from that data, we have found uh, several intriguing things. One, it turns out that physical activity, the higher your levels of physical activity, the lower your rate of cancer recurrence and the better your ultimate survival. And we estimate that probably 150 minutes a week is uh, associated with the biggest protective effect. Another factor that we've looked at are a variety of diet, dietary factors. So following a Western pattern diet, for example, which is comprised of red meat, processed meats, high fat foods, a lot of processed sugars, that is associated with an almost two and a half increased risk of having your cancer come back compared to somebody who follows a more prudent pattern diet, which generally follows a Mediterranean style. And all of these factors seem to point out that energy balance plays a big role in colorectal cancer pathogenesis. So these states of sedentary behavior, obesity, poor diet are associated with excess energy balance that results in insulin resistance. And we know from the laboratory that insulin resistance can promote tumor growth, decrease apoptosis, and a variety of other things that can eventually lead to cancer. So that's the leading biological hypothesis for why some of these lifestyle factors may be important. The other factor to mention that probably has the most data to support it is actually aspirin, Uh, taking an aspirin a day, and we don't know exactly what dose or the duration, but an epidemiologic study seems to be helpful in decreasing the rate of recurrence of colon cancer. And right now that is being hopefully uh, tested in a large randomized trial through our Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology Cooperative Group to see whether or not it does have a role in secondary prevention.
0: And so the patient comes in, I should tell him, walk 25 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. Is walking okay, or is it should be more
2: vigorous than walking? So walking is actually adequate. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's probably about 25 to 30 minutes a day of walking, and it doesn't even have to be, we think, all in one time period. It can be spread out throughout the day. It is probably more beneficial to get the heart rate up um, in order to have a protective effect. Mm -hmm.
0: We get asked about aspirin all the time. Should it be a baby aspirin? Should it be a full aspirin? Should it be every day? Should it be every other day? We also know that aspirin has its own downside, a small risk of bleeding, particularly if a person falls. So what, what do you recommend when you see the patient, when he, when this man comes to you to start his chemotherapy, what would you tell him?
2: So I evaluate a variety of factors, whether or not they have a bleeding history, whether or not there's a history of cardiovascular disease and other risk factors that may benefit from aspirin use. You know, aspirin is different than a lot of the other dietary and lifestyle behaviors that we counsel our patients on, because as you point out, there is a real risk of bleeding and adverse events. And so until that phase three trial reads out, we are not blanketing, blanket recommending this to to patients to take. But if there are specific risk factors, family history, then we tell them to discuss uh, the risks and benefits with their primary care doctor as well as their oncologist and then make a determination.
0: Any vitamins to help?
2: So no vitamin has been proven in a randomized clinical trial as of yet to prevent the recurrence of colon cancer. We do have a lot of data on vitamin D and having adequate levels of vitamin D in the blood seems to be associated with a better outcome in terms of decreased risk of recurrence, as well as an improved survival. However, we really do need a clinical trial to test whether that actually has a role in secondary prevention.
0: And one of the things we've discussed in the past is 1,000 units okay, 10,000 units, which type of vitamin D? There's so many choices that a person has to make when they go to the pharmacy or the supermarket when they get in there.
2: Yeah, so there is a really high rate of vitamin D deficiency right now in the United States with the median level in some of our studies of colorectal cancer patients being in the deficient range, which is less than 20 nanograms per mil. We know from dose finding studies that in order to raise those deficient levels up into a sufficient range where we think there could be a protective effect against cancer recurrence, you really need probably much higher doses than is recommended by the Institute of Medicine. And we've done studies now in metastatic patients where probably 2,000 to 4,000 units a day are necessary to increase levels into the target range.
0: But one of the things that happens is that if you go on vitamin E and let's say calcium supplementation, women with osteopenia or osteoporosis, the cardiologists come and tell us, don't do that because you're going to increase the rate of calcium buildup in the coronary arteries. So is there a sweet spot?
2: Yeah, there has been a lot of caution lately in recommending calcium supplements, and generally it is preferable to try to get as much calcium as possible from the diet uh, rather than from supplements. And uh, so that's what we typically recommend. In terms of vitamin D, it's really hard to get enough vitamin D from the diet. Even though milk is fortified and a lot of foods are fortified with vitamin D, it's really only around 100 to 200 units, which is not nearly enough to make a difference in the blood level of vitamin D for an individual. So for vitamin D, supplements are probably the best way. There is also sun exposure, which is probably the most efficient way to increase a person's vitamin D levels in the blood, but obviously there are risks of Skin cancer and melanoma with increased sun exposure, so we don't recommend that as a way to increase your vitamin D status.
0: Too bad that's the best way to get vitamin is D. So, all right, the 28-year-old daughter of this man uh, comes in on one of the visits, and he, he, she sees you and says, "Look, what can I do to not get this when I'm 50 or 60?" Let's say this was not a genetically related tumor. Are there is there anything that? a person or the daughter or the son of a cancer patient can do to decrease their chance of getting colorectal cancer.
2: Yeah, so now we're switching to what the role of these diet and lifestyle factors are in primary prevention, uh, prevention of disease initiation in healthy individuals. And, you know, obviously we recommend colonoscopy first as the gold standard uh, for screening and, and picking up cancers. And now with the new ACS guidelines, probably the age to start screening is 45 rather than 50. In terms of diet and lifestyle, the only factor that has been shown in a randomized clinical trial to be able to decrease the risk of developing colon cancer is, again, aspirin. So there have been several randomized studies, large studies with healthy individuals as well as individuals with cardiovascular risk factors or Lynch syndrome. Also studies of people with polyps that have shown that taking an aspirin, Mm -hmm. Whether or not it's a baby aspirin or full-dose aspirin, the results are conflicting, but taking an aspirin for 10 to 20 years will decrease the risk of recurrent polyp formation as well as development of cancer. Again, because of the risks of bleeding, um, it is not uniformly recommended unless somebody does have a genetic predisposition, for example, where the evidence might be stronger in favor of starting aspirin for chemo prevention we really have to take into account the individual risk factors, um, as well as bleeding risk.
0: For the medical oncologists out there, uh, the, the patient, the six-year-old goes on fulfox, which has its side effects. Are there supplements that should be recommended during the administration of chemotherapy, let's say, to decrease the risk of neuropathy?
2: Yeah, so that is a great question and a topic of a lot of research um, over the past years Initially, there was a lot of excitement around IV calcium and magnesium infusions because the thought was that those uh, minerals and vitamins can be protective against nerve damage. And there was even a phase two study that seemed to show a significantly decreased risk of neurotoxicity and neuropathy when calcium and magnesium infusions were given with the chemotherapy. Unfortunately, that didn't pan out in the larger phase three study and is now no longer recommended also because there isn't, um, it's unclear what the effect on cancer outcome is by doing the calcium and magnesium infusions. For neuropathy, we sometimes recommend vitamin B6. There are some anecdotal data that that might help, although to be honest, nothing out there really seems to decrease the risk of neuropathy. Um, so that is something that we really need to watch out for for patients.
0: Now, we're doing a vitamin D study here. Um, we, as the colorectal surgeons, Sort of identify the patients that may be eligible for this study. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what's the, what's the goal of that study?
2: Yeah, so that preoperative study is really to try and understand the biology of how vitamin D might be acting in colorectal cancer. And all of this is based on large prospective observational studies that higher levels of vitamin D seem to be associated with a better survival. In patients with colon cancer, we actually have evidence from a preliminary, an earlier study in the Nurses' Health Study and Health Professionals' Follow-up Study, where we looked at the vitamin D levels of about 300 colorectal cancer patients and found that those with levels above 33 nanograms per mil or higher in the blood seem to have significantly improved survival. In that study, we found that the benefit of vitamin D may actually be higher in more advanced stages of colon cancers, namely stage three and four disease, as opposed to stage one and two. And so we follow that up with a larger epidemiologic study looking at stage four colon cancer patients enrolled in CALGB SWOG swag 80405 And in that study, we we cited a really high incidence of vitamin D deficiency. So the median level before starting chemotherapy was only 17 nanograms per mil, which is squarely in the deficient range. And we found that those individuals who had much higher levels had significantly better survival as well as progression-free survival. So obviously, because epidemiologic studies only show correlations and not cause and effect, We followed that up with a randomized phase two study called the Sunshine Study that was presented at ASCO in 2017. We randomized 139 previously untreated metastatic colon cancer patients to receive very high doses of vitamin D. So they got 8,000 units a day for two weeks as a loading dose followed by 4,000 units per day until disease progression versus the control arm which just got 400 units per day, which is the amount in a multivitamin and from dose-finding studies we know doesn't significantly raise plasma levels, so it serves as a useful active control. And what we found was that patients who were randomized to the high dose of vitamin D had significantly longer progression-free survival compared to those who got the control arm doses. And now this study is being followed up by a larger confirmatory phase three study called Solaris, which will be run through the Alliance Cooperative Group. The trial you're talking about that involves the collaboration with our colorectal surgeon colleagues is really supplementing patients prior to their colectomy for stage one to three uh, disease to see what vitamin D is doing in the tumor tissue. So we're supplementing patients with very high doses over a short period of time prior to surgery 50,000 units per day to try to really raise their vitamin D levels up. And then we're collecting tissue from the operating room to identify the target binding sites of the vitamin D receptor and to try to determine what changes in gene expression might be happening so that we better understand biology and maybe can better select the patients who will most likely benefit from vitamin D. So that study is still ongoing.
0: Yeah, ongoing, although soon we'll have a meta accrual. Well, I wanna thank you, this has been great. So to um, summarize, if you get a cancer, Get your exercise up, get your energy uh, sort of index, uh, your ins and your outs uh, in, a, in a better place, and maybe possibly take some aspirin.
2: Yeah. So what we typically tell patients is, uh, just as you said, exercise as much as you can, try to maintain a normal body weight, uh, follow a healthy diet, and consider aspirin and getting vitamin D levels up.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much. Yep. Jeff, that was an excellent discussion with Kimmy about supplements and other aspects of lifestyle that may be able to be primary prevention or uh, influence outcomes uh, in patients who have colorectal cancer. I know you've had a big interest in this field and have been a participant and a leader in some of the trials looking at exercise and at anti-inflammatories. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I agree. That was a great discussion by Dr. Ng, looking at a variety of what we call host factors that patients can do to try to increase their chances of, uh, of a better outcome and lower risk of recurrent disease. But really, the, 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 the issue that, that Kimmy raised is, these are all observational studies. We've looked at what people said they did, and we followed them over time, and we see how outcomes were impacted by exposures that people reported. Ultimately, the gold standard in medicine is a randomized trial. And behavioral studies aren't easy to do. And there's a lot of sort of confounding factors, as, as Kimmy pointed out. But there are some studies now uh, going on on several of these fronts. So there is a large study out of the group from Canada doing an exercise intervention, a supervised exercise intervention. It's called the CHALLENGE trial. It's specifically actually looking at disease-free survival in high-risk stage 2 and stage 3 patients. It's currently enrolling, and we'll have data for that hopefully in the next several years. There are smaller efforts, including some that we've done here at the Dana-Farber, looking at do, does people who have survived colorectal cancer, and if they exercise, how that affects things like insulin levels and, and various metabolic uh, biomarkers. But ultimately, the largest study that's looking at this hopefully will finish accrual and be able to report out. In terms of aspirin and, and COX-2 inhib- inhibitors, there have now actually been several studies mounted. Several have actually completed accrual. None have yet reported. What we know about aspirin is there was a randomized study in people who had prior colorectal cancer. And they were randomized to aspirin at 325 milligrams a day versus placebo. And they had a lower risk of subsequent polyps. So we know it actually can affect the risk in colorectal cancer survivors. Ultimately, we want to know does it also affect their risk of recurrent or uh, uh, overall mortality. And there are several trials that are going to look at that. So I helped co-chair a a trial that looked at Celecoxib. It was actually a trial that had two questions, the three versus six months, which we've talked about in other episodes. And the second part of that was Celecoxib versus placebo. And that trial had patients take Celecoxib at 400 milligrams a day for three years versus placebo. And we hopefully will have that data in the next year or so. Uh, to be able to see does that enhance in addition to standard chemotherapy does that lower their risk of recurrent disease and improve overall mortality there's also a large study in asia looking at aspirin that is also accrued and there's currently an ongoing study that's being led by the uk called ad aspirin that's looking at it in four cancer types including colorectal cancer patients who completed adjuvant therapy being randomized to aspirin or placebo. So we will actually have randomized data over the next several years to really know, both does it help patients ha- add aspirin or a COX-2 inhibitor, have data on, are there particular populations that'll have a lower risk of bleeding and the other complications from these agents, as well as uh, improve their outcomes. Well,
0: that's, in- that's a very interesting, and also will be uh, a lot of great information because as we know, aspirin is a double-edged sword, as we talked about earlier with Kimmy, and that it can have its own complications. Right. And it will be important to know whether the benefits of these anti-inflammatories uh, more than outweigh the risks.
1: Correct. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. And, and you know, there has actually been some recent trials of primary prevention for cardiovascular disease, which have caused some patients pause. And again, I, I talk to patients about it. It depends what we're doing it for. If you're taking it, there are those primary prevention trials have caused some pause for certain populations, whether aspirin really does benefit or not. But again, if we have clear data in someone who's had colorectal cancer and it affects their outcome, that's a different situation you'd be uh, uh, using it in. Again, it has to be weighted. They have a prior risk of ulcers or bleeding. But if we have positive studies for this, it would really be evidence that patients should be encouraged to uh, include that in their post-therapy regimens.
0: Well, that's great. And we'll have another podcast soon on on another fascinating topic. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ron.
1: That's it for this episode of How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast. Some great discussions. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Kimmy Ng. To find out more about this and other cases, listen to all our episodes and access more information about colon and rectal cancer care. Just visit HowWeTreat.org. We would love your feedback or questions about our cases. Visit HowWeTreat.org to enhance your podcast experience.